So I think these changes are very troubling because once again, what their effect is to make it harder to hold CEOs accountable. If we're going to have down round IPO pricing as a common feature of our public markets, ordinary investors ought to understand that what that means is if you buy at this price, you're going to face dilution caused by the issuance of additional shares. This is real money that ordinary investors have lost. And the question is, should we do we have the power to return it to them? Welcome to BizLaw Banter, a conversation with luminaries in corporate governance, M&A, securities regulation, and more. It's Friday, November 15th, and I'm Ren Holding, the editor of Columbia Law School's Blue Sky blog. Today, John Coffey, the Adolph A. Burley Professor of Law at Columbia Law School, talks with Robert Jackson, a commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Jackson joined the commission in 2018 from NYU Law School where he's a professor, and he was for years a familiar face around here at Columbia as a professor and the director of the program on corporate law and policy. He has also served as an advisor at the U.S. Treasury Department and in the office of the Special Master for TARP Executive Compensation. Here's Professor Coffey and Commissioner Jackson. Good afternoon. Uh, This is Jack Coffey, and we are particularly fortunate to have with us today Commissioner Robert Jackson of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Much has been happening at the Commission in recent months, and while in the past there was usually a tendency for the Commission to reach a consensus, to reach a compromise, that's been happening less often recently, and there have been some divided votes and important policy differences. We're going to review several of those today, and I'm going to begin with Commissioner Jackson telling us what's going on with respect to proxy solicitation rules and particularly the shareholder proposal rule, which has been around for 60 or 70 years, hasn't been changed much, but is now up for significant revision. The SEC on November 5th just put out a proposed rule for 60 days worth of comments, and Commissioner Jackson dissented on some important points. And let me ask you, Commissioner, what's at stake here? Explain to our audience why this is important and why you disagree with some of your other commissioners. Well, thanks so much, Professor Coffey, for having me here on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here uh, for the inaugural edition, Uh, and it's an important question you're asking. Um, Really, what these proposals are about is holding CEOs and corporate insiders accountable for the way they spend shareholder money. And you're right. Last week, my colleagues on a a partisan 3-2 vote um, adopted several changes to our proxy solicitation rules that uh, will make it easier for CEOs um, to spend shareholder money as they prefer. Um, Let me start with the first set of changes, which have to do with the proxy advisory firms. Um, The two biggest players in that space, of course, are Institutional Shareholder Services and Glass-Lewis, who together um, represent more than 90% of the market for advice. Uh, As you know, Professor Coffey, the service that these large proxy advisory firms provide is to advise institutional shareholders with respect to how they should vote their shares. Uh, And there have been some questions over the last few years about conflicts of interest and other issues in the business model, Um, among other things, the fact that there are only two players in that business. Um, And for years, the lobbying groups in Washington that represent chief executive officers have urged the SEC to make it harder for proxy advisors to do their work. Uh, Last week, the proposal that we moved forward um, would do that in many ways. Um, First of all, it would require a proxy advisory service before giving advice to shareholders as to how to vote to run that advice by 
the management of the company. Um, uh, second, it would require those institutional um, uh, um, uh, investors um, in connection with reviewing that advice to take certain steps um, with respect to the methodology and diligence that they use when evaluating the advice. And third, and perhaps most importantly, uh, the new rule that we proposed would make the proxy advisory firms liable under Rule 14A9 to the degree that their methodology or data or other sources um, uh, were in some way uh, incomplete or inaccurate, giving the corporate issuer a hammer to um, use in litigation to pursue against ISS or Glass-Lewis in the event that they have some quibble with the methodology. Now, let me focus on that last point just a little bit further. You referred to Rule 14A9, which is an anti-fraud rule. But unlike other anti-fraud rules, it doesn't require the plaintiff to prove an intent to defraud or scienter. Negligence is sufficient. So a proxy advisor can give out information that it thinks is basically information to educate voters on how they want to vote as shareholders. But if there's a material error there, um, arguably a material error, the corporation can apparently go to court, sue based on a negligent error, possibly for whatever damages it can allege follows. But this is going to be very costly for proxy advisory firms, and it may make them a little chilled and what they are willing to say. What's your view on that possibility? Well, the way I think about that is um, to put yourself in the position of a proxy advisory firm that's got to decide whether to recommend for or against management. If you recommend for management under our proposal, nothing happens. See, the management will be very happy. They might review your recommendation and be delighted to agree, but they're certainly unlikely to sue. Now imagine if you have the temerity to recommend against the CEO. First, you can expect to get all kinds of complaints about feedback you'll get on the opinion that you're giving. Um, second, you might have to, under our new rule, Jack, include a link to the management's own opinion in your advice to your client. But then, as you point out, the most important point is that a CEO who's upset enough with you has the threat to sue you. Now, I worry about the lawsuit itself for the reasons you've given, Professor Coffey, but what I really worry more about is that in expectation of that litigation, ISS and Glass-Lewis will give less, um, uh, will be less often, um, or less likely, I should say, to um, recommend against corporate management. So it's a chilling effect problem. Yeah, the way I think about this, Professor, is that um, what we've done on proxy advisory services will tax uh, anti-management advice. If this rule is, or anything like it is adopted, CEOs in America can sleep much more easily knowing that ISS and Glass-Lewis have to pay a tax in order to recommend against them. Now, interestingly, this has happened really in two steps, because about six or nine months ago, the SEC revoked a prior no-action opinion, which had said that the advice given by a proxy advisor did not amount to a proxy solicitation. Now, we withdrew that no-action letter. That doesn't mean that the advice is a proxy solicitation, but there's a very broad definition of proxy solicitation, which includes any communication that is likely to impact or cause the giving, granting, or withholding of a proxy, and that really exposes them to this new round of potential litigation. That's absolutely right. And, and one of the things that I'm most worried about here, and this is where we started, so it might be useful to remind listeners, there are only two proxy advisory firms. It's not as if this is a business um, that has generated many, many competitors. So if a lawsuit or the threat of one eliminates one of the two competitors, we might go from a duopoly to a monopoly. 
And I have tried very hard to remind my colleagues and even CEOs that if they don't like the world we live in with two proxy advisory firms, if they feel those firms have too much power now, imagine how they'll feel when we've turned the industry into a monopoly by making changes like these. Uh, a chilling point again. Now, we started with proxy advisory firms, but the rules put out on November 5th also include the shareholder proposal rule. And for a long time, 70 years or so, shareholders have been entitled to submit questions to be voted on at the shareholders' meeting under some elaborate SEC tests. All right. Now, that's just been changed in these proposed rules. For example, an ordinary shareholder will have to have held the shares for three years before he is eligible to submit a proposal. How do you feel about that? So I think these changes, too, are very troubling because, once again, what in, in their effect is to make it harder to hold CEOs accountable. And let me say why. You're right, Professor, that first we've changed the standards for making an initial proposal. Um, as my colleague, Commissioner Allison Lee, pointed out in her exceptional dissent, um, if you haven't held the shares for three years and you've only hold it for, held it for one, you've got to hold more than $20,000 in an undiversified position uh, in the company shares um, uh, in, order to, um, uh, in order to bring a proposal. Now, as Commissioner Lee pointed out, I thought quite correctly, for many ordinary investors, that would represent a huge proportion um, of their uh, total overall savings, um, a very significant fraction of their nest egg. And we ordinarily at the SEC do not advise investors to be undiversified in this fashion. So for all those reasons, we are moving the conversation away from individual ordinary shareholders and toward larger ones. But that's... Uh, please go ahead. Well, the proposal that's probably drawn the most fire with respect to the amendments to this Rule 14A8 has been the resubmission proposals. It used to be that if you didn't get it through the first time, you could resubmit the next time if you got even 3% of the shareholders to vote with you, and there was a 3 5 and I think 6% standard. Now that's going to be moved up to, I think, 5%, 15%, and 25%, which is a very large vote. Now, maybe you can explain to us why that may really cut off various kinds of shareholder activism. I think you're right, uh, Professor Coffey. This is where the action really is, because what this does, this ch change in the resubmission threshold proposal, will take off the ballot huge amounts of CEO accountability measures. And let me tell you why. As you pointed out, 25% um, uh, of the shareholder body is an enormous proportion of shareholders. You and I both know, um, having taught here at the Columbia Law School, that uh, shareholders are rationally apathetic, that they have significant collective action problems, and we can expect in equilibrium that many of them will choose not to vote um, uh, uh, under, under ordinary circumstances. What that means is that the SEC has never treated um, uh, uh, shareholder vote outcomes and turnout as the sole determinant of the importance of a subject under shareholder uh, proposal law. Just to give one example of why that's true, in 1992, when the commission developed its executive compensation rules, we listed in our uh, adopting release a series of shareholder proposals on executive pay at public companies that we said formed the basis of shareholder interest in, um, uh, in, those, uh, in this area. We listed uh, nine companies and proposal results. Of those nine, Eight of them would be thrown off the ballot on the third try under my colleague's new standard. You see, we at the SEC have always considered rather low shareholder vote um, turnout and uh, affirmative votes still to be a significant indicator of interest in a subject, which is why these new thresholds um, are so troubling. 
Now, some people have suggested that there is typically a process of shareholder education. The first time a proposal is put out, shareholders don't immediately sense the significance of it. It may get a relatively low vote. The next time there's been some learning, some discussion, and it may get a higher vote. And there have been recently proposals on things like climate change that are getting majority approval, but only got a trivial vote the first time they came out, meaning the public has grown more sensitive to those issues. Well, that's exactly right. It takes time for shareholders to understand why an issue is important, to develop a view about it, and to cast their vote. And what this change will do is take those proposals off the ballot before that consensus can form. One of the most troubling things about the the way the commission proceeded here is that there was no analysis or study at all about which proposals will come off the ballot if this were adopted. And I want to give you two examples, Jack, of ones that will come off the ballot. So my staff put together a a data set and and analyzed what would happen on the third try to proxy access proposals that would allow large shareholders to put their own nominees on the ballot when they're unhappy with management. And we found that 40% of those proposals will come right off the ballot on the third try because of the high uh, threshold that my colleagues have proposed. Or if you prefer, an even more popular shareholder proposal, one that requires CEOs to hold the stock they receive as executive pay, half of those proposals will come right off the ballot as a result of the new uh, standards that my colleagues have adopted. These are just two examples of CEO accountability measures that shareholders have been adopting for years that'll be um, taken right off the ballot as a result of my colleagues' um, proposal. I'd like to now shift gears a bit and move to a different topic, which is new practices in the area of short selling. There have been a number of activists recently, sometimes they're called negative activists, who put out a negative research report after after having already taken a strong short position, and sometimes they profit a great deal. One of the most interesting cases occurred in August when a fairly legendary figure, Harry Markopoulos, who was the first person to identify Bernie Madoff as basically the runner of a Ponzi scheme, put out a report saying that the accounting uh, financial statements of uh, General Electric were worse than Enron. Worst than Enron was his headline, and the day he put that report out, 400 million shares traded on the New York Stock Exchange just in General Electric, and the stock went down 25, 30%. Okay. Then, uh, not much else happened, and the stock crept back to its prior position or above, suggesting that the market, when it ultimately considered all this, didn't see much credibility to Mr. Markopoulos' objections to General Electric's accounting. But Mr. Markopoulos and his friends, who'd all taken short positions, uh, seemed to make out like bandits. Is this healthy? So, um, without commenting on that particular matter. Um, and in my, in my current role, I, I try to take great care not to focus on a particular matter. What you're describing um, is a situation where the real question you're asking is to the degree that someone is putting um, uh, advice out there about their view on the company and its future, if their underlying holding position um, does not reflect that advice, or if you prefer, if what they're actually holding in the company stock changes very quickly in a way that is inconsistent with that advice, whether that's something the SEC should be taking a look at. And speaking generally, um, I think that it is, and I want to say why. Um, There's new research by your colleague, uh, Professor Joshua Mitz, um, a paper called Short and Distort, 
that provides, I think, very compelling evidence to the degree that um, there might be a more systematic question across our markets of folks using their ability to put out information and then quickly change the underlying position that they hold um, in a way that allows them to make short-term profits at the long-term expense of American businesses. And I think that would worry me for two reasons, Professor. First, I would think it'd be very challenging for corporate management to focus on the long-term value of the company to, if they're facing this kind of attack. But second, and even more importantly, I wonder that the investors who are selling might be the kinds of ordinary retail investors um, who can be taken advantage of in this kind of situation. Um, I know that my colleagues on the commission share the value of protecting those investors, um, and so the evidence presented in Professor Mitt's paper really does deserve our attention. Well, now, let's focus for a moment on what kind of proposals the SEC could consider, just consider. Uh, one possibility is that even if there is no duty to disclose a short position per se, you should have to disclose a change in a position that you have announced. Mm -hmm. Suppose Mr. Markopoulos or someone like him has put out a negative report and indicated that he had taken a short position, but then he closes out that short position, happy to reap the gains up to that point because he does not want to take any additional risk. Should he have to disclose that? Should the commission adopt any rules that might require you to disclose a sharp change in your position? So. I would certainly uh, want to take a careful look at the details of any such proposal. Um, and the reason, um, Professor Coffey, is that, as you know, short sellers play an enormously valuable role in our markets. They enable price discovery. They help us detect bubbles in asset prices earlier and, um, um, uh, and to the degree that they've done that in previous um, uh, cycles. They've been enormously valuable market participants. I wouldn't want to tax them in the role that they play. but. Uh, what you're really asking is, should they be required to be honest about the position that they hold and to update the disclosure to the degree that it changes? And I think there is good evidence to suggest that um, uh, such a duty might be a sensible one, especially if we're worried um, about the problems documented in, in the paper that I mentioned. Well, let's remind our audience that it was really short sellers who brought down Enron. They took a long, hard, difficult position for six months and eventually convinced the market that Enron was a house of cards, and they deserved to be applauded for uh, economic heroism there. So none of us want to stop the short seller, but there are practices that could be a little sharp and a little bit misleading to investors. That's right. And again, um, I worry, uh, and you're absolutely right to point out, even during the financial crisis, there's a, uh, a famous book and film that document uh, the difficulty of the short position that folks took um, and uh, how hard it was for them to maintain their view that something was wrong. And um, uh, of course, um, the crisis proved them right. I think um, we don't want to discourage them from taking those positions, but we do want them to be honest market participants, especially with ordinary retail investors um, who might have less sophistication about the decisions that are being made and the information that's out there. So that would certainly be a concern of mine. Now, let me shift gears again because time is running. Uh, probably the most dramatic development in the world of initial public offerings or IPOs was the spectacular failure two weeks ago of WeWork. And just about everything went wrong there. It's hard to say what caused the collapse of that planned IPO. In January of this year, the last round of private financing showed a valuation for WeWork of $47 billion. 
Okay, that was just among allegedly sophisticated private investors. Now the offering gets filed confidentially with the SEC at the end of 2018, and it's negotiated. We don't know on the outside what went on there, but it's not till August that it comes out to the public, uh, following a, a not unusual procedure. Okay, when it comes out, institutional investors were shocked. They couldn't believe the amount of self-dealing that was revealed there and some fairly tacky practices. They also were a little disturbed at the way control was totally locked up in one person, uh, the CEO and founder. And there was particular surprise at some of the accounting metrics that were used. These are not GAAP metrics. You're permitted to use other kinds of metrics if you reconcile them to GAAP, but they invented totally new concepts, such as something called community-based EBITDA, which I thought was the stuff of cartoons. All of this makes one wonder about what's going on that the IPO marketplace has people thinking they can be gamed in this fashion. Uh, and now I want to focus you on the last and less noticed uh, feature uh, in the WeWork IPO. It had a practice that is now becoming at least somewhat common. It's called the IPO ratchet. Under it, institutional investors who invest in the last round of private financing get an anti-dilution clause, sometimes called an IPO ratchet, under which if the public offering occurs at a price below their last financing round, they'll get issued additional shares to hold them harmless. In effect, they get a guarantee that they will not do worse when the IPO occurs, but the cost of all that falls on the public investor who doesn't really know that he is going to be subject to a massive issuance of shares. And in the particular WeWork case, an investment firm called Renaissance Capital estimated that it would be between essentially $400 and $500 million of loss to the public investors if WeWork was priced below the price of its last round of financing. Right now, WeWork is probably worth about a fraction of that last round of public financing. Is there a practice here the SEC should give some more attention to? So again, without commenting on the particular uh, okay. firm or case that you mentioned, the answer to that question as to whether or not um, we should be focused on this at the SEC is absolutely yes, and I'll give two reasons why. First, we have at the moment the frothiest, most liquid private markets um, that I've ever seen, having spent some time both on Wall Street and as a corporate lawyer. Um, at the moment, a number of transactions on the private side are getting funded. Um, at very, very significant valuations. And the public markets in the last little while have been playing a disciplining function. Um, uh, as these valuations uh, find their way to an IPO, public investors are taking a careful look at what, um, uh, what we can learn about the company. And in a few cases, as you say, have insisted on down round pricing, where the IPO price is below the previous uh, private valuation. That gets my attention because uh, public investors are famously um, uh, f uh, rationally apathetic, as I mentioned earlier. Um, um, the IPO pricing dynamics over the years have actually often gone the other way. And so what we have right now is a fascinating moment where it's the public markets providing discipline to the private markets uh, rather than the other way around. And I think that deserves our attention, as I say, for, for two reasons. First of all, what was notable about the example you gave and some others is that the gatekeepers that would ordinarily um, moderate corporate governance at the stage of an IPO uh, are really no longer playing that role. 
when I was an investment banker doing IPOs in the late 1990s, um, the New York Stock Exchange had a very significant role in corporate governance and would oversee the standards uh, uh, that the companies were following before they came public. Um, now that the uh, stock exchanges are private profit-making entities, they've exited the business of corporate governance so that a company can come public with a structure that allows their ch uh, not just the founder to have hammerlock dual-class control, but the founder's children and their children, um, providing forever family control in the style of royalty um, uh, to a founder. And because there's no serious institutional player who actually can serve that gatekeeping function at the IPO stage, uh, it's really left to public investors to say no to certain of these practices. And in the case you mentioned and a few others, they've begun to do just that. But the second problem you've raised, Professor, is one of disclosure. Because I must tell you, um, the IPO ratchet is well understood among private investors. And if you were to say um, to a private investor, notice that I've got anti-dilution protection in the next round, no one would find that remarkable. It'd be really rather standard. But I think the disclosures about that to public investors um, have been um, not nearly so clear as we might need them to be. And in particular, what I worry about that is to the degree that it's becoming clear that down-round IPO pricing is going to be more common, and therefore additional shares will be issued in order to compensate earlier-round investors for the lower prices. Uh, at a minimum, I think we'd want ordinary public investors to understand that that was happening so that they could price that dynamic into the IPO. And probably see a table that showed of how much dilution there would be, how much share issuance would there be at various prices below the expected price. You know? That's right. And um, you can imagine a number of ways that that disclosure mm -hmm. could be provided. Now, again, I want to be clear in any particular, I'm not commenting on any particular case and the particular rules that we might have to pursue to deal with the problem um, would be complicated. But let's just be clear about one thing. If we're going to have down-round IPO pricing as a common feature of our public markets, ordinary investors ought to understand that what that means is if you buy at this price, you're going to face dilution caused by the issuance of additional shares. If they choose to buy it on that full understanding, well, I think, Professor, we'd both come to the conclusion that that might well be their choice. Um, but they'd have to have clearer information about that than they do now. Now, let me shift gears one last time. You said you're not going to comment on a specific case, but I'm going to ask you about a specific case that's quite a challenge for the SEC. The Supreme Court has just granted certiorari in a case called Liu, L-I-U, versus SEC, and it raises the question of whether the commission has any authority at all to seek disgorgement. I believe last year the commission's enforcement report just came out, and it reports that they obtained something like $3.5 billion just in disgorgement. But the Supreme Court has raised this question on its own because there's no conflict in the circuits. There's no prior decision questioning or challenging their ability to get disgorgement. But the court has said, we don't know they have authority, and now they've granted cert. What would this mean to the SEC if they decided against the commission? Uh, so I should be careful not commenting on issues that are currently before any court, especially the Supreme Court. But I can speak generally about the importance of disgorgement to our enforcement efforts. And let me start, Professor, by saying our co-directors of enforcement, Steve Pekin and Stefa Vakin, um, have just reported a truly extraordinary year, um, returning hundreds of millions of dollars to ordinary investors. And, you know, there have been many wonderful surprises of the job that I'm in now, um, but the first among them. Uh, has been the privilege of working with um, the co-directors and the staff across the country who do this work. Um, and just more generally, the idea that we would want to make it harder for those public servants to return money to ordinary investors strikes me as a puzzle. Um, and it follows, of course, um, you didn't mention the case, but we should start with Kokesh. 
the decision not that long ago in which um, uh, the Supreme Court concluded that the statute of limitations applies um, uh, to disgorgement that we seek. Now, the eighth footnote of that opinion included a reservation of the broader question as to the power more generally, um, uh, of course, to order uh, disgorgement in these cases. And which, I was, which was read by many as almost an invitation to plaintiffs or to defendants to challenge, because the commission seemed to say we might listen. Well, um, uh, you mean the court. Uh, the court, the, and then eight footnote, could have been read uh, as an invitation to defendants to raise this issue. Yeah, I think that's um, uh, that's. Uh, some people read it just that way, and uh, here we are facing that question now. Uh, I can tell you that um, fixing the, what's regarded as the co-cash problem uh, strikes me as a common-sense solution, um, and I think it's got very broad bipartisan support. Um, we should do something to make sure that we have the power to get money back to investors. I mean, Professor, remember, we're talking here about a situation where a fraud has been committed. Nobody is disputing any longer whether there was fraud, whether, whether a remedy is appropriate. This is real money that ordinary investors have lost. And the question is, should we, do we, have the power to return it to them? And it's very hard for me to imagine um, why the answer to that um, uh, would be anything but an enthusiastic yes. I think the Congress is considering and will continue to consider a fix to the Kokesh problem. If the Supreme Court expands Kokesh even further, I have no doubt that it will make the important work of our enforcement team uh, even harder. Uh, and here's what's important. It'll be harder to return money to ordinary investors. Um, and uh, as I say, our staff are extraordinary, uh, but they need the legal tools to do their job. Um, and so I'm very hopeful that the court will consider that carefully. Um, and again, I don't want to comment. I'm sure we'll have um, exceptional briefs before the court uh, um, as the case proceeds. Um, but I would be concerned if Kokesh were to be extended beyond uh, the, be, uh, any further than it already goes. Well, we've just seen that the court and the SEC are facing some stark decisions, and there is a stark challenge on the horizon of the SEC. And we're all glad that you're there helping the SEC face these challenges. And at this point, I want to say thank you very much. We've enjoyed having you, and I think you have really uh, clarified the issues for our audience. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much. That was SEC Commissioner Robert Jackson in conversation with Professor John Coffey at Columbia Law School. Please join us again soon for another edition of BizLaw Banter. <laughs>